Hi, this is Scott Walker. You're on uh, our weekly podcast, You Can't Recall Courage. And this week, uh, we've got a great guest for you, uh, someone I really admire, someone who I had the pleasure of working with for a while, and someone who I'm proud to say is not only one of Wisconsin's finest members of Congress, but I think one of the rising stars in the United States House of Representatives, uh, a Marine who was deployed, someone who's got an incredible background, and uh, someone who we're proud to say resides in northeastern Wisconsin. Uh, today, we're glad to welcome our friend, Congressman Mike Gabler. Thanks for joining us. Governor, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Well, this is a crazy time. You've you've been in now for a few years, elected in 2016, your second term here. Did you ever imagine uh, in, uh, I don't want to say dreams, because this certainly isn't a dream, but did you ever imagine in all the time you, you thought about you know serving in the Marine Corps, being deployed, working with General Petraeus, working with members of the House and the Senate and the administration, and now uh, being a, a rising star in the House. Did you ever think uh, that our country and, and you'd be in a position to help our country in a time like this? Uh, well, I never imagined this scenario. And the irony is I spent the last year chairing this outside commission on U.S. cyber policy, where we did try and think through imaginatively what future scenarios would look like if we suffered a massive cyber attack uh, from a state actor or a non-state actor. And we even wrote a report where we kind of did this futuristic scenario of a dystopian future in order to get people's attention. But we never thought about kind of how do, how that could be combined with the pandemic or just the devastation that a pandemic like this could create. And I think what makes this very tricky is, you know, I'd look back to the other major traumatic event of my adult life, which was 9-11 when we were attacked. Right. That was almost more immediately destructive but the message after 9 11 was go back to work you know don't be intimidated etc cetera, etc cetera. the nature of this virus is such that you know we're almost saying the opposite it's stay at home don't go back to work and that's what makes this i think very very difficult as we're discovering two weeks into this shutdown or slow the spread shelter at home that has enormous consequences for our economy and it's creating a, a lot of anxiety along with anxiety over the virus itself well, you're exactly right. I wrote about uh, last week, my column in the Washington Times uh, was about, uh, actually told a story of someone I met up in Merrill, Wisconsin, not too far, a little bit further west from where you're at, uh, back my first year as governor. And there was a big tornado that went through the area, damaged a bunch of homes, thankfully no loss of life, but uh, and, and ripped apart a number of businesses up there. And I got this great um, gift uh, uh couple months later, one of the business owners gave me a keychain that he'd made out of a piece of copper that was ripped off the top of their, their plant and they'd stamped on it, bent, not broken. And uh, it was one of those where it was, uh, um, it was one of those where they sent it out to all the people who'd come and visit and help them. And just a good reminder that even though it was hard for the community at the time, they were bent, not broken. And, and I took that a step further and kind of laid out all these times throughout American history. Obviously, you alluded to mentioned 9-11, uh, talked about, uh, you know, the world wars, uh, talked about even back to the Revolutionary War about, you know, how we were fighting at the time the greatest military power in the world in the United Kingdom. Uh, thinking about the Civil War, nobody ever would have dreamed uh, that uh, a country could be torn apart in a Civil War and still come back and, and be the superpower that we are. Even thinking about the First World War, uh, coming back uh, from that, uh, our entry into that uh, back at the, about this time in 1917, 
and then a year later winning the war, but then having to fight the Spanish flu, which took over 600,000 lives during that time frame. It, the, the tough part about all this, and, and maybe you can comment a little bit more on this, is that it, it's we've been each of those battles, uh, even after 9-11, even though it was different than a, a war in a traditional sense, at least there was a war on terror. We had a known, or at least we thought a known enemy. Um, now that we have an enemy for sure, and in, in many regards, we're just as much at war as we ever have been in the past, but it is unknown. And how how does the government go about trying to, to counter that? Well, I think as we're discovering, it's quite difficult. I mean, we just passed a two trillion, I never thought I'd be, you know, uh, passing a $2 trillion bill in less than a week. Although as a rank and file member of Congress, you quickly realize that leadership has the ability just to magically pass these things without any amendments or debate. And that's a topic for another podcast. But um, I, I think I think this it's interesting what you raise. There's sort of the absence of an easily identifiable external enemy here because the virus is, you know, it's invisible in a lot of ways. And what makes it very difficult is that there's a lot of people who presumably have it, but don't have symptoms and are therefore spreading it around. I do, however, think when the dust settles, no matter how successful or unsuccessful we are in slowing the spread and no matter how much it costs us, or particularly if it costs us more and more, there will be a reckoning for how this started. Uh, I think in particular, there'll be a reckoning for the Chinese Communist Party and their malfeasance in covering up the origin of the disease, um, not allowing our CDC experts access to the country to help them. There were some analyses that were coming out suggesting had they acted a month sooner, they could have slowed the spread by 95%. And of course, now you're seeing them embark on this massive propaganda effort, this information warfare campaign. And in many cases, they're being aided and abetted by useful idiots in the American media that seem to now be cheering the fact that our uh, infection rates and uh, pretty presumably soon our death rates are going to exceed that of China while ignoring the fact that China's data cannot be trusted. So I actually do think this is going to harden what we've already seen in the last three years, which is to say opinions on China. I always think back to when when you and I worked together, Governor, in that moment after the they hacked, the Chinese hacked uh, the Office of Personnel Management. Yeah. Um, and you called rightly, in my opinion, for canceling the state dinner and the official visit that they had for General Secretary Xi. And the media lost their minds. They said, oh, well, this isn't how you do diplomacy. We have to be nice to them, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> yeah. Well, we've, we've tried being nice for two decades and it hasn't worked out. And so that to me was just you know, a very, a very interesting moment and part of this larger story. Well, you're, no doubt about it. And, and it's interesting, the contradiction. I mean, on, on one hand, when President Trump stopped travel from China, you had not only the media, but Joe Biden himself uh, attacking the president, essentially calling him a racist. Uh, and, uh, and yet now we realize, had he not done that, how much worse it would be. And it'll be interesting. You know, day by day, we keep getting reports. I saw something yet again this morning that talked about, you know, with the number of caskets and urns, being delivered to families from that area, uh, that it could well be more than 40,000 deaths just coming out of that epicenter alone. Um, just remarkable numbers and and uh, just the manipulation. Uh, this is something that, I, I guess it's, you're right, there's a whole bunch of different topics there. Um, not only uh, China, but just in, in general, I'm amazed. There's always been some discussion of some bias in the national media, but 
but but one of the scariest things I think that's come out of this, besides just the virus itself, has been the obvious sense that in America, um, there's such a high level of distrust with the media from so many different angles that that I think that actually made it even more difficult to tackle the seriousness of this crisis because so many people didn't trust the media to give them the information straight. They figured everybody had an angle. I mean, you listen these days, it's either it's either entirely uh, China's fault or it's entirely Trump's fault. The reality is it's, it's somewhere in between. Certainly you're right. The Chinese government, the Chinese Communist Party could have done more to tackle this, uh, but it's so hard. I, I guess that's why in many regards, I, I appreciate it every time Dr. Fauci in particular is up at the podium, because I do think he may be one of the few, if, if, if not the one person in America that by and large people listen to. And I, I'm glad the president continues to listen to him as well. Uh, but it is a trying time to try and figure out how do you get information out to the American public that people believe. Yeah, I think most people, myself included, see these wildly different estimates flying around social media. You know, on the one hand, you have the Imperial College study out of London with very apocalyptic projections about the number of deaths and infections. You have an article that went viral on Medium that was similarly uh, focused. And then you have Stanford professors saying, you know, we're overreacting. Then you have sort of a denier camp. There seems to be a generational divide, by the way, on that. And a lot of people are just trying to figure out what is true and what isn't. And then you add into that the obvious bias of the media. I think a lot of people don't know where to turn to for accurate facts and reporting. A final thing I'd say that you made me think about is, you know, let us, you know, I've been, I'm a, I'm a, I'm known as a pretty big China hawk, and I do think China deserves a lot of blame for this. But while we figure out how to hold them accountable, we can't allow that to, uh, we can't use that to get ourselves off the hook for very real failures in our system, right? I think it's fair to say that everyone is rightfully disappointed with the slow pace of testing in this country. And that's a complicated story involving the FDA and the CDC and why we weren't able to ramp up testing exponentially. What's, what's been interesting for me to see, and I'd be curious as a, as a former governor, whether you see this too, it seems as if every single state is competing with each other for benefits from the federal government, right? I mean, everyone's trying to get their share of the national stockpile. And so I do think it's fair to point out that our states have become unusually dependent on the federal government for a variety of things right now, certainly just for money. So I guess I just bring that up to say there are a series of lessons we have to learn when the dust settles, and we will have to take a hard look at our own system. But if we learn the wrong lessons, for example, like, oh, this proves we need single-payer healthcare. Oh, this proves we need more onerous FDA and CDC regulations. Or, oh, we need the states to be more dependent on the federal government. I would submit that we would have learned the wrong lessons. Oh, I, I think you just nailed it right there. I mean, I think that is so dead on. You're right. As a governor, I look at this and think, if anything, uh, that re that reinforces a word I don't often say. I, I say I don't say the F word, and I don't I don't say that word either. But I often don't say federalism because I think most Americans, unfortunately, particularly younger Americans, think federalism means more federal government. Uh, but but I look at this and I think, no, we become too dependent on the federal government. We put too much power in the federal government and the states haven't taken charge for this. And and the governors that I think have, have performed well, uh, even those you know, politically, I wouldn't align myself with. I, I actually think uh, Governor Cuomo's done a reasonably good job considering the circumstances in New York state 
because he finally got off the dime. And yeah, he's still asking for things from the federal government. But at some point he woke up and said, hey, I got to take charge of this, unlike some other governors and even the mayor of New York City, who I think is still woefully focused on this idea that that somebody else, namely the federal government's got to got to do this for them. So there's there's a lot that's going to have to be sorted out. I also wrote something the other a week or so ago before it even got worse here about anybody who thinks uh, Medicare for all government run healthcare is a good idea. Sadly, need only look at Italy uh, because, uh, of course, that's and, and that's a, a variety of things. It's not just uh, the, the government run healthcare. It's a, a government that I think has been replaced something like 60 times since Mussolini. I mean, it's, it's a horrible, horrible wreck and, and a whole bunch of things that not only do we need to look at, but the rest of the world is going to have to look at. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, uh, Congressman Gallagher, I, I want to talk a little bit uh, about uh, a column you wrote in the Washington, excuse me, in the Wisconsin State Journal, not Washington, the Wisconsin State Journal, uh, that I, I thought gave us some great insights for what comes next. We got to fight this battle, and everybody listening, boy, you got to you got to stay home, you got to follow the protocols, you got to help us bend this curve so we don't have the kind of problems uh, in places like Wisconsin, elsewhere that we see in New York City, but. But we should also be thinking as we take on this war against the virus to protect the health and safety of the American citizens about what do we do next to help make sure we, we come out of this with a reasonably healthy economy. And we'll be right back after this break. Hey, I'm Scott Walker. You're back listening to You Can't Recall Courage, our weekly podcast. And we're honored this week to have Congressman Mike Gallagher, uh, who's just uh, not only a great member of the Congress, but got some tremendous insights uh, I valued his time working with us. And um, as I mentioned before we went to break, you wrote about a week ago a column for the Wisconsin State Journal that I thought was right on the money. And it's one of the things that, again, I want to stress to everyone listening, in no way do, does this in any way undermine uh, the order from the president and the actions taken, and particularly Dr. Fauci and the rest of the task force saying that we need to to follow things through through April 30th. We, we were just talking about these extremes and in all the different models and that. I loved last Sunday uh, when Dr. Fauci got up and was asked about that. He talked about how, you know, there's, I think it was a reporter asked as they typically do, you know, what's the worst case scenario? And I thought he handled the question really well. He said, well, I'm not gonna comment on that because he said, I look at these models and there's some that are a worst case scenario and there's some that are probably too uh, uh, optimistic. And he said, it's his job to use all the science and the medical background and experience he has as a public health officer to try and use that information to measure the circumstances. Worst case scenario, uh, as he alluded to, is if we did nothing, which obviously we have. We've, we've taken action with travel bans. Uh, we, we've done the distancing. Uh, we, we've done these changes in many areas like Wisconsin where people are at home. There's a lot of things we have done to mitigate uh, the increase in the number of people affected by reducing the number of people exposed. Uh, but he said at some point you've got to follow the, the data. And that's where I think there's a lot of increasing amount of confidence in, in the, uh, the recommendations of this task force. Certainly the president himself has taken that to heart. But I've also felt, and I know you have as well, Mike, that that we can't just be focused on that, that, you know, it's the old adage, you, you should be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. We, we absolutely positively have to put our focus on making sure we protect the health and safety of Americans all across the country. But there's gotta be some sense that at a, at a, a parallel track, we're preparing 
to get this economy back on track. It can't all happen at once. It can't be done all at the same time, but there's got to be some logical steps as to how we can prepare so that we're not left with yet another crisis uh, once we beat the virus. And, and you talked about that. I thought you wrote a, a great column with some great insights. Why don't you share a little bit of those with our listeners? Well, I guess my, my basic point, if you boil it down, is that if you're going to ask Wisconsinites to sacrifice, and I think they are willing to, right? I actually have been encouraged by a lot of what I've seen here in Northeast Wisconsin. Everyone seems to be taking this seriously, some more than others, but I think people generally get the idea we got to hunker down and sacrifice to protect people and save lives. If you're going to do that, however, you need to give Wisconsinites hope. You need to give them a light at the end of the tunnel because hunkering down for 15 days, let alone a month, let alone four months, is an extinction level event for a lot of our small businesses. Uh, it creates enormous problems for parents to tell them school is canceled and they have to take care of their kids. There are all manner of secondary and tertiary consequences that it's hard to anticipate. And so all I'm saying is let's use this time that we're hunkered down to slow the spread of the virus to also plan for what the next phase of this looks like. And I have to believe that, and you know, it's funny. I actually think we, this is kind of a source of weakness and strength in our country. Weakness from the perspective of, obviously it's difficult in a country like America to shut everything down, right? We're not China. We can't weld people into their apartments and force them not to move and cut off their internet access. It doesn't work that way. However, therein lies a source of strength, which is to say we're a very diverse country where what works in Brilliant or Alloway is different than Milwaukee and Madison, let alone Manhattan or Manhattan Beach. So could we not embark on a bottom-up approach where gradually we start opening back up based on the data we're able to collect and we learn more every single day about the virus and at least give people some hope in the process. Now, easier to say than do, and I was very kind of 30,000 foot broad in my recommendations, but I just fundamentally don't think we can afford to stay shut down for four months. We at least have to think through what a hybrid strategy as we learn more looks like. No, I thought your insights were great and in fact, my column for next, uh, this coming Friday in the uh, Washington Times is about taking that next step. Uh, I, I thought your overall themes were great. I look at things about, uh, my, my thought would be eventually, and I stress, I wanna make sure nobody misinterprets what we're saying here. We're not talking about doing it now, we're talking about doing it once it's safe, once Dr. Fauci and others have talked about, this is the time for us to move forward and, and start making that transi transition. But I talk about allowing uh, the economy to, to move forward with and the phrase I use is extreme caution, uh, meaning you've got to do it, I think, in a, a logical way. I think the more in the coming weeks we start talking about having a plan, because the thing I worry about is that we just show up, you know, on May 1st and things are great, which hopefully they will be uh, prayers to heaven for that. Uh, but that suddenly we wake up on May 1st and, and we really not only the government, but more importantly, the, the private sector and society as a whole, we haven't done a good enough job of putting together a plan for how we make that transition. You're right, not only small business owners, I, I have to believe that there are so many people, certainly here in Wisconsin, but across the country, who want to go back to work, who are eager and hungry to go back to work, not just because they need a paycheck, uh, but because, you know, being trapped up here, it's just against our human nature. I mean, 
King Solomon was pretty wise for many re reasons, but one of those in the book of Ecclesiastes, he talks about, you know, finding joy in life is finding joy in your labor. And, and people, I think, are missing that, at least for those who can't work from home. So I, there's got to be a whole logical transition here with extreme transition. We're going to talk about some more of that in the future, about what the next steps might look like. You know, how do you distinguish between office settings where people are maybe in cubicles close together and how that transition is going to have to take longer? Uh, and, and probably in places where businesses can work from home, they're going to need to do that longer. Other businesses like manufacturers um, are going to have to find some ways. I, I've got a neighbor, for example, even before all this heated up, uh, he and I chatted. He's a owner of a manufacturing company in Wausau. And uh, we talked about exactly the things that we're going to have to be talking about in the future. A few weeks ago, he already started, closed the break room, closed the lunch room, um, had people eat and take their breaks at their equipment, uh, measured how many people could come in. So they weren't coming in at the same time, even then trying to make sure they were at least six feet apart. There are ways that can be done. But I think one of the missing things I, I've certainly seen here in the state of Wisconsin uh, from state government, and, and I'm not going to, like I said, we're, we need to focus on how we get this done. But one of the things I've seen elsewhere in the country is, is this lack or this gap of people explaining why. I hear a lot of the what yeah. and the how, but not the why. I, I got to believe, Congressman, uh, I, I think you alluded to this as well, it, particularly here in the Midwest. We'll do things. We'll do the right thing. But you got to tell us why. If people say, hey, we've got to re refrain from going to big public events because we got to you know, break this curve out. Tell us why and we'll go out and do it. We're rule followers. We'll do the right thing. We won't endanger our neighbors, but you got to explain to us why. And I just haven't heard enough of that going forward. I hope we hear more of that. Congressman? Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. You know, this is you know, I live in the land of the Catholic deer hunter, right? We're, we're rule followers. I always feel like I'm breaking rules up here. Um, but uh, I do think, I mean, let me advance a radical uh, hypothesis. Neither the governor of Wisconsin nor the president of the United States is going to be able to design a one size fits all solution that, you know, works for every business or every nonprofit or every industry. Right. As you, I think, rightly hit on. There are some, you know, businesses where let's say you're building something outside. I have to believe you could figure out how to continue working and do social distancing in a way that keeps your employees safe and keeps them earning a good living. There are some industries where more employees can do telework than others. There are some factories that can get creative with continuing their operations, but not having crowds of more than 10 in close proximity. There are some sports and recreational activities that probably would make sense to reopen and reallow sooner than others, right? Like I don't see the Bucks playing at Fiserv, you know, anytime soon to a crowded arena. However, I do think, you know, golf is probably safer uh, sooner than, you know, basketball is. So I just, all I'm saying is there has to be a middle ground as we shift into phase two, but this is all premised on our ability to actually understand better what is going on with testing, with data collection, and our ability to analyze data. Now, the good news is we have a lot of companies that can do that. I've been trying to work with the governor's team to get them to avail themselves of the free services some companies are offering. I actually think we could get to a point using technology uh, to the point of giving people hope or the why of providing near real-time updates of how Wisconsin is doing in terms of testing, cases, supply chain, equipment, hospital overload, et cetera. 
we're not there yet, but I hope we can get there in phase two. Well, I think these are amazing times. And uh, as I said at the onset, uh, you know, America has been bent but not broken many times in the war, uh, whether it was dealing with world wars, uh, whether it's been dealing with conflicts, whether it's been dealing even with things as simple as reacting to 9-11, the, the biggest attack on American soil since Pearl Harbor. Uh, but we've come through it, and it's been because we've had leaders not just in government, but across the spectrum, religious leaders, business leaders, community leaders who've stood up. And Congressman, I'm glad you're one of those leaders who's helping us here in Wisconsin and across the nation. Tell listeners, if they want to learn more about what you're up to, what's your website? Uh, Gallagher.house.gov. But I would, since I spent a, a year working on this, I would ask your listeners to go to Solarium. .gov if they want to learn more about cyber and how, what a nice. massive cyber attack could look like. That's solarium.gov. Great. Well, Congressman Mike Gallagher, we appreciate uh, your leadership for Wisconsin and for the nation in Congress. And I'm glad that you joined us this week on our uh, podcast, You Can't Recall Courage. Uh, thanks uh, for joining us. And uh, be well to you, your wife, your family, to everyone in your district. Uh, be healthy and well and be careful. Thank you, Governor. Thanks for your courage. And to all our listeners, again, be well out there and keep fighting for freedom. Till next week, I'm Scott Walker. Thanks for joining us.